0: hi everybody how are you doing it is the let's see 15th of september 2022 my name is luke thomas this is episode i believe 131 of my live chat i hope you are doing well on this wednesday afternoon um you guys know the drill thumbs up on the video hit subscribe if you haven't already done that i appreciate that when you do um Let's see, we go for about an hour of free questions. If you have a paid question, I will get to it at the end. You are certainly under no obligation to do that, especially after what happened with Tuesday, which we'll talk about in just a second. But uh, let's see, I think without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? Uh, And we're back. Uh, All right. So as I mentioned, um, Tuesday, what happened? Here's really the the simple reality to it. On Monday night before I flew out, I was like, it's really important that I do a uh, post-UFC pay-per-view live chat on Tuesday, something I wanted to get going as a tradition. Um, And I have put up a thread, obviously, for you guys to fill out on the community section here at youtube.com slash LukeThomas. i filled it all out. And uh, you guys put up a bunch of great questions. We're going to get to some of them here today, certainly. I don't want to ignore all of them. Uh, and then I took the red eye home. I got home about eight thirty. Was in bed by nine a.m. Something like that. I was able to sleep a little bit on the plane, but really not much. And then when I woke up at uh, noon um, for the one p.m. live chat, I was absolutely uh, a complete zombie. And so I could have done it, but I was there was a no way I could have, I could have taken donations and be more to the point. It's not even really about that. It just would have been terrible. It would have been a really bad lie. I would have been phoning it in. And I'd rather not phone it in. Um, at times, I've had good chats. At times, I've had bad chats. At times, the topics have been great. At times, they have not. At times, I've had high energy. At times, I have not. But if I know it's going to suck I, uh, ahead of time, right, where a way where you can really anticipate that this is not going to be up to snuff, I just couldn't go through with it. So I was awake. I never went back to sleep. But it, I just, I was a complete mess that day. I went to bed. Um, by the way, as a sort of a side note, uh, they want me to start doing live reaction shows on MK after contender series was supposed to do one tuesday night i I, I was i was done i was done i gave all the energy i had to my kid and i had nothing left so sorry about that um i'd rather do nothing than than do a bad job but i would still rather do a good job than everything else that happened um you know live and learn i normally don't travel on sundays and mondays before tuesday live chat so it would it's a rare thing but you get the idea. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your understanding. That is basically what happened. I just didn't want to do a complete shit job. And I know I would have. I know I would have. Um, okay, so let's try this out here. You guys complained about a couple of things. One, uh, like right where my hand is, you guys were complaining about um, the logo that was there. I took it off, so that's no longer a part of it. I hope you guys appreciate that. And two, you were complaining that when I went to the questions, you couldn't see anything. Does this fix the problem? I think that this does. I blew it up, uh, the size of it here so that you could see it. Um, let me know if this is better. If this doesn't work again, we're still trying to figure this out. I hope that this is better, but if not, we can figure something else out. This of course was from the update. I'll go to some of these first and I believe this is from the one on Monday. Yes, that's correct. So there you go. Hopefully this will be a little bit better. All right. With that out of the way, thank you for all of the, uh, Understanding of the delays, your your participation, your uh, everything. I, I'm really sorry about Tuesday. Let's make up for it now. Okay, first things first. Let's pick one with a few more of these. Okay. Hey, Luke, I know after the last performance, we were hoping Tony doesn't get fed to new hungry fighters and instead gets OG treatment. With that said, how would you feel about him versus Nick Diaz? I believe Nick is still under contract, and him versus Tony is a rare current matchup. Uh, where I don't think either is in danger of being seriously dominated by the other. So here's what I said on MK now that I thought about it. By the way, on my post-fight show for MK that I did on Saturday night, some of the folks pushed back. I said this on Mondays or even yesterday's MK, one of the two MKs, I think Mondays. I had said that you know folks pushed back on my Tony Ferguson analysis. I had thought that in in real time, what I had thought was that his durability was in question but overall there was a certain assertiveness in the fight that I appreciated and I looked at the responses and people were like hey I might have liked this or that what you said but I really disagree about Tony so I went back and I rewatched the fight again and again I've moved closer to the, some of the positions that the critics had of my original argument I do think that he probably um, I was maybe looking I don't know I was being I probably wasn't being as honest with myself about his condition as I should have been so what I think is the appropriate response at this point is, one, you could advocate for outright retirement. You're talking about a situation where that's not in play. So if it's not in play, what would be something that you could allow? I thought that the Jim Miller sort of style of thing would be appropriate where you are taking on – oops, let me go back since I've got the question off. I thought that the Jim Miller situation was appropriate where you're taking a situation that is um, – He's still in the UFC. There's still a role for him, but it's a very specific role. It's sort of this senior gatekeeper to some up-and-coming guys, some sort of up-and-coming mid-level guys. You're not, you know, you're not giving that guy blue chip prospects by and large. You're giving him good prospects. Not that kind of thing. Um, and so as a consequence, you have to ask yourself: does Nick Diaz by virtue of degradation from his original high-level ability, fall into that kind of category. He might. The problem was with the return that he showed. And also, it's veteran versus veteran, two guys who are much, much older. Yeah, I, I suppose I could live with that, but I still think that You know, part of the reason why you would want someone who is like an up-and-comer or, you know, making their UFC debut or they got one fight in, something along those lines, like really, you know, give them an entrance that is difficult. The reason why that's a good slot for Jim Miller is that, you know, against Nick, Nick is going to be hard to put away, right? He's probably going to last a little while. Even if you beat him, he's going to last a little while. And it just seems like that might be a much more damage-intensive fight than even an up-and-comer who might be fresher they're going to have a lot more development gaps that are going to enable you to take advantage of it so that the fight could end a lot quicker. There's a a little bit more of that going on. Nick is not so over the hill that you would imagine with a better weight cut, a better weight-making plan, not having things thrust on him at the last minute. Again, whatever circumstance led to that very poor performance against Robbie Lawler, I'm told from people close to him that that didn't necessarily need to be that way, and it was. So, I just feel like Nick has got, in terms of the, um, in both offense and defense, there's been degradation, but to me, he'd be a little bit more resilient down the stretch, and I could be wrong about that, Um, but I I think a newcomer could be fresh, you know, a a threat in a number of ways, but they're going to have developmentally a lot of other gaps that Nick won't, even if they have, you know, not nearly the amount of miles on them. So, you, you would have to wonder, like, does he fall into that category or not? He could. He could. I don't think that's the optimum way to use or for Tony's career to be or what kind of fights the UFC should offer him, I guess, is the best way I should say it. But I do think it could work. I think it's a possibility for it, something like that. All right, let's go back. Sorry about that. Uh, let's get a good one here. Let's see. This is a decent one. Uh, I read an article about the potential absorption of Showtime into Paramount Plus. What impact would this have on morning combat? Yeah, that's a great question. We don't know. We don't know. Um, so far, there's actually been a little bit of integration behind the scenes in a few smaller ways. And what I, by the way, most of this is utterly divorced from me and not like Showtime tells me anything. So this is all conjecture to be very clear. Uh, but, you know, there's been some smaller integration behind the scenes that has gone really well. I know there's some imagination about what would happen if everything was folded inside. I mean, partly Showtime would still exist a little bit on an island because it's by itself an, a separate entity. So in many ways, probably nothing. But you would imagine that, like, what they're trying to do with sports, there would have to be some kind of integration along those lines. You would have to imagine, you know, how would it how would it affect the economics where um, what would be the cost to Paramount Plus from... Integrating people who had just Showtime subscriptions into Paramount—how many would you lose? How many would you gain? What would be the trade-off in costs? There's just a lot of ways where that would, I think, potentially affect budgeting down the line. But it's hard to say exactly in what ways. It just seems like these corporations, what what the the conglomerates, what's ending up happening is that to compete with like even like you know we talked about this before, whether you like Disney or not, whether you have kids or not, like the amount of intellectual property that Disney owns. Is extraordinary, right? They, they own Star Wars, they own Pixar, they own anything beyond that. Nat Geo and, um, you know, X Men and Marvel. I mean, they're, they're, that that intellectual property is incredible. And now you combine that with Hulu, you combine that with ESPN. This is a really formidable bundle that, that you are a series of accounts you could have. I think all these other corporations, and, you know, uh, in various ways, you just saw what happened with HBO Max and discovery plus and everything they're trying to combine them into these like super um uh streamers where they have just this massive mountain of portfolio content that they can go to. If you guys open up Paramount Plus now, what you would get is you have live TV for whatever your local CBS affiliate is. Sports for me, I was able to watch the Madrid game yesterday because it was Champions League. They have the rights to that. Um, obviously, they've got all the movies there. They've got a ton of um, television shows and everything else. But you know, adding a, adding like a prime property like Showtime to it. Uh, which I know they already did with part of the uh, excess bundle, but like you know, really getting rid of that independent Showtime bundle or a um, streaming service and just everything under Paramount Plus. That is, it's big. I mean, there's a lot of ways where you could imagine the corporate to, to be to not to not speak in completely total corporate babble, but quite literally, I mean, or I should say, quite genuine, genuinely, the corporate synergy. There's a lot that CBS does on the sports side, there's a lot that Showtime does. Um, you would imagine there would be something there, but in terms of how it would ultimately fall down on us it's just way too much unknown way too much unknown you know it's really hard to say plus the other part of it too is remember um pbc when they first started out had all these deals with with spike and they were on um obviously showtime and they were on cbs and like there was like a million different channels they were on you guys remember that when pbc first did their thing and now the PBC deal with Fox is ending, I believe at the end of this year, I believe that's right. And they're going to be totally out of it, which would leave Showtime AKA or, and or CBS in there. So what does that mean for boxing through PBC, through Showtime and CBS? No one really knows. No one really knows. But these are the bigger, these are the bigger questions I'm paying attention to at this point. I'm paying attention to what happens with PBC, what happens with Bellator. But by the way, Bellator could, and I'm not just theorizing here. Like, just think about it. If Showtime is under the Paramount umbrella, does Bellator move off Showtime onto Paramount Plus? Like, these are all things that could potentially be in play. Like, there's all kinds of ways that things could move around. Where God only knows what they would want to do with it. Does boxing move off Showtime and go strictly to CBS or something like that? I mean, there's just a lot of. It's so much. IP, it's so many moving parts. That it's just, it, it. it's an important question. Um, I don't have a great answer for you, but these are the bigger ones that I'm, the bigger questions I should say that I'm paying attention to. All right. I have not read Michael Bisping's book. Hilarious, just so funny. I mean, the funniest joke. I mean, who could not laugh at something like that? Uh, have you seen the trailer for Black Adam? Yes, I have, but I don't intend on putting a dime in The Rock's pocket, so I guess I'll put some when it makes its way to eventual streaming service, wherever it ends up, but I'm not going to go to the theater and put money in his pocket, I can assure you that. Let's see. Okay. Following the fallout of, Ch- of Chumayev's scale fail, who would you like to see him fight next if he is forced to compete at 185. To me, the central t- question of Chemayev's career is, is really not about who he can beat. I think eventually he'll be a weight class champion, especially at welterweight. The bigger question is, can he make welterweight reliably and consistently going forward? Because I think it will have a dramatic impact on his career. I don't think that he is necessarily outgunned at 185. It's very hard to know, right? Right. To what extent he's been tested at 170 is, is again, by Gilbert Burns, a lot, but by the rest of that division, hardly at all, right? Uh, but we have at least some kind of testing at 170 pounds. At 185 pounds, we have a fraction of that. It's really, really hard to know what his upside might be. We barely know it in the weight class that's best for him, I would be I would just be and anyone telling you they know for certain exactly how far he can go 185 is simply lying to you. They don't know either. So, that given that that's the consideration, I would start him, let's see, let me look at the rankings here. Let's put this up. Let's look at the rankings. Well, actually, hold on just a second. Just to be on the safe side. There we go. Okay, now let's pull that up. So, at 185, you've got Chris Curtis, Brad Tavares, Drikas Duplessis, Nasur Adin, Imovov, and Kelvin Gastelum. In theory, I wouldn't be opposed to any of these. In theory, but honestly, you could start him outside of it. You could start him with like a Hadolfo Vieira. I'd be very curious to see how he does against that. Right? I mean, because he could box him up on the feet and he he, he could probably win that way. But, you know, some interesting novel challenges at 185 slow and incrementally we simply don't have very much information about how well he would do at 185 so you could in theory do this I don't even think that's necessary I certainly wouldn't give him Muniz or Till or Hermanson I would start I would definitely start inside this space right here from Gastelum to Imavov to Duplicy I know a couple of these guys have fights coming up Tavares and Curtis that's that's where I'd be looking Were it up to me I know a lot of people like I just rush him to the front like they want to do with Bo Nickel like Bo Nickel might go in there against uh, the, I forget the CFFC welterweight champion or middleweight champion who he's facing I, I forgive me I forget his name but um, you know folks want to just put him in the UFC right away it's like listen he might go and bulldoze this dude from CFFC like I, I don't I, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if he didn't or he did excuse me but I would also not be surprised if he didn't I would be like yeah right like it takes a little while to put it on people who have a little bit more going for them what you often like this is the thing about Shuma, this is the thing about Shumaev and Habib that we don't really have a great answer for Habib and Shemaev are very different kinds of fighters for a lot of different reasons but obviously there's some meaningful similarities as well particularly in the grappling department yesterday on Twitter morning combat's account they didn't include all the context that I would have preferred but in general I, my view is that you can find Francis Ngannou who's going to go and punch someone's lights out In the first round, he's going to have the better first round stats than Hamza Chimaev. But in terms of physically controlling, manhandling, right, sort of a grappling, wrestling based attack, Chimaev to me is the best first round fighter in MMA. Um, You could maybe point to someone who's a leg lock person as having also in with a similar kind of vein, a little bit more of a first round resume. But to me. Even that isn't really all that great because they're only first-round fighters. I mean, they have really nothing left after that. Like, to me, there should be something a little bit sturdier behind it. What you have to ask yourself is, and this is the big question I've said about Shemaev, is like, if you had someone really, really good who could stop most of what he wanted to do or at least slow it down and then uh, see what his gas tank looks like in the fourth and the fifth, because you could ask yourself a question, like, could Habib, if he really upped his intensity, have looked similar on the ground if he so wanted? Something to think about, right? In other words... Chamaev and Habib might have similar levels of ability in terms of that sort of ground attack, especially from the back, the rides, the wrist captures, the ground to pound, a submission threat along with it, you know, being able to transition from like judo throws to folk style takedowns and everything in between. Um, whether like Habib is smarter because he slows down the intensity, but he can scale that effort over the course of five rounds. We don't even know if Chamaev can do that yet. We don't really know if like, can he scale that first and second round intensity over the course of five rounds? Habib can more or less keep that thing up for five full rounds. To me, it seems like there's a real question about whether there's a drop-off with Chemayev after a certain point, especially the way he looked in the third against Gilbert. And again, if he's fighting balls out, he could also dial it back and then maybe have something more scalable. But what I'm trying to point to you about Chemayev is there's a shitload of unanswered questions just in general about his fight style, in general about who he is, about what's the best strategy to employ his or, like, the Habib style, which is a little bit, you know, he's aggressively hunting as well, but it's a little bit more measured. He takes his time. Islam, I think, even more so than that, is even calmer, even slower. Chimaev is just shot out of a cannon. But, like, I don't know how scalable that shot out of a cannon part is. Here's what I can say, though. For the first round, you know, I don't know who, in terms of manhandling, does better in that first round than he does. Like, his ability to just completely make someone else's physical grappling and wrestling resistance just completely collapse it i don't think i've ever seen that before i don't i don't know i've ever seen that before to to move them around throw them on the ground force them into defensive positions where all they can do for short periods is merely survive it's mere it's not even defense it's merely survival um, in that particular circumstance, in that particular way, he looks to me like the best first-round fighter in MMA. But, you know, obviously anyone who's got like three first-round stoppages is going to have a better re- record. I understand in terms of striking it, the equation changes a lot. But putting your hands on you, that guy is ridiculous. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's go back to – let's see with some of these ones with the – let's go to this one. Let's see. All right. Okay, good question. In retrospect, do you still believe that Tony versus Habib would have made for a compelling fight had it happened the first or second time it was booked? How much of Tony's recent struggles on the ground, Oliveira, Darius, and I guess getting subbed by Nate, would you pin on him declining as an athlete through aging and damage as opposed to him simply now finding himself going up against top players in the case of Charles and Benil? who are just uh, of a higher order than him and would have been able to dominate him at any point in time. So I have a mixed feelings on this. To me, there's just go back here real quick. To me, there's simply no denying that um, the Gaethje fight changed him. It's just, I don't know how any, any rational observer could deny that. And the reason why some people are a little bit skeptical about it, or at least hesitant in some kind of ways, I think most folks realize that was a pretty bad beating, but Rather, that they are holding on to this idea that, like, well, it was bad, but, um, you know, not so bad. I, and, and, and because you can't like exactly quantify, you can't draw a straight line between that beating and a very specific thing that happened to him, right? I went to the David Benavidez, excuse me, I went to the uh, Jose Benavidez Jr. fight against Danny Garcia. Jose Benavidez Jr. was one of the top prospects in all of boxing. He was shot in the leg. And now he can barely move. So he does a lot of like trunk movement, but his feet are planted. You can draw a straight line from him getting shot to now that moment in time. Um, It's hard to do that with the Gaethje beating, but I do believe it changed his durability. I I think it changed his willingness to engage. I think it changed um, a lot about everything that all that verve and zip and pop used to have. I think a lot of that got zapped as a consequence. The other part, though, is, and I think to the part you're raising, Violetto just came home, so God only knows what Tokyo's gonna, or, uh, Godzilla's going to do in, in downtown Tokyo. Got to get my nasal cord in, y'all. Hang on. Kevin Lee had his way with Tony as well, and Kevin Lee was kind of sick for that fight, right? First round. That Kevin Lee ultimately kind of collapsed. The effort collapsed from him, but first round, he was kind of manhandling Tony, and even Danny Castillo, was able to take him down kind of at will. I think my thought was the best version of what that fight could be would be Tony being unpredictable on the feet and hurting Habib, Habib having to fight out of defensive spots, but that more than that, Tony would do ground and pound from underneath or survive from underneath long enough to potentially have some kind of submission threat to cut Habib open to disrupt whatever he was trying to do to, again, catch him on the feet, to just really kind of put Habib on his heels and then make it close in that way. But I thought like the better of the two for the bulk of the fight would have been Habib. I think now, you know, could that have been true at a point in time? Who's to say, but I, I think the one thing I might walk away from all of that is even if that is the very best version, um, I still think I'd be able to win that probably nine times out of ten. Probably. Like, I think that it's plausible to argue what I'm arguing, but I don't know how probable that is. A, a prime Tony, certainly than the version than the version we have today would, would be, you know, obviously a significantly different conversation. But even then, I wonder. You know, I think I'd probably revisit the conversation in that way. Uh, here's an interesting one. This is a great one. Uh, Let's see. I think it would be cool to celebrate Tony Ferguson for a minute. Can you talk about your thoughts on his career, both highs and lows, and what you think his legacy will be once he actually retires? Also, now that title aspirations are clearly out the window, when it is all said and done, he is going to go down as the greatest fighter to never hold an undisputed UFC title. Yeah, he might. He would certainly be on the very short list for that. I mean, there's no denying that. Um, I met Tony. Through the Ultimate Fighter process, I'm not, not exactly sure how it happened. Maybe the UFC was handing them out. I don't really remember, but somehow I got hooked up with Tony. Where you guys remember when people in the Ultimate Fighter would have columns on various sites? The way that that works is sometimes those guys would write their columns top to bottom, but that was extremely rare. Most of the time, what you would do is you'd have an interview with the guy and you would record the interview and you would take his language and you you know, you would just stitch it together. Like you might add a little bit of language here or there, but um, they would see in many cases, they would see the final copy. They would sign off on it and you'd put, the give them the byline. Um, when he was on, I think, was it season 13 or something like that? So whatever he was, I can't remember exactly what season it was, um, but I was that guy for him. I was that guy for him. And so I would talk to Tony every week, literally every week. And I uh, would get his take. I would get that. They would send you the episode in advance. You watch the episode, and then you talk to him about it, you ask him questions, and then you stitch all of his words together, and then there's his column. I did that for him. And um, I sort of got to know him that way. You're asking more about, like, um, the general nature of his career. I, I think at first, you know, and by the way, he was loathed on The Ultimate Fighter at the end. Remember, he got drunk and had this, like, you know, breakdown where he was attacking everyone and everybody verbally or otherwise. And then, you know, he kind of realized he had a bit of a problem. I I wonder, I think he had given up drinking after that, something along those lines. Um, but there was a period at the very end of the Ultimate Fighter where he was kind of a villain um, with the fans for a time. But ultimately, I think the story of Tony Ferguson, as best I can remember it, is that a guy, again, who came off the Ultimate Fighter, who wasn't right away a super dynamic sensation, but then began to really build through that incredibly long win streak that he uh, put together, a unimpeachable run in a very difficult weight class and not just a run where he was getting wins but he had a really unusual way of speaking he had an unusual way of fighting he took risks he was exciting he had i've talked about it before he had a huge punch even at 170 he had a big punch at 155 he had a very dynamic punch he was durable as shit and he had absolutely untouchable cardio i go back to it all the time the guy fought. Rafael Dos Anjos in Mexico City, five rounds, went the distance. His performance never lags, and that's a city above 7,000 feet in the air, and you could never have told the difference. That might be his peak performance, to be honest with you. RDA was barely in that fight. I mean, he was in it. It was, you know, he's a good fighter, obviously, but that was Tony's fight when the when the final bell rang. There was no question about who had won that contest. That's the kind of shit I'm talking about. And he had to layer it piece by piece by piece by piece, especially coming off The Ultimate Fighter, where he was not necessarily well liked by the audience at that time. Everyone goes through these all these these these. Um, there's Tuki complaining about pasta. Um, everyone goes through these periods where the crowd loves him and the crowd doesn't. Early on, they did not care for him, but obviously, he just he was the the fight game is a place for weirdos. Right of all different varieties. Maybe you think I'm a weirdo, but whatever. There's just so many, it's a it's a repository of so many unique and interesting personalities. Tony always had a very unusual style where he didn't he, he looked like an athlete, obviously very, very thin, but he could punch his lights out, he would just forward charge into opponents. He had great Darce jokes. He could surprise you with his guard underneath and his, he was a 10th planet black belt and he was kind of aligned with interesting people like Eddie Bravo. And again, in in media dressing a certain way, like wearing batting gloves and all kinds of weird shit. He always did his own weird shit over and over and over again. And it's hard for the fan base to get on that. But if the winning keeps happening, they begin to see the method in the madness and they begin to see the beauty in what Tony uh, was doing and and what he had become and again you add on top of that just how good the fighters were that he was beating and beating them badly like he did to that shit i've talked about before man I, you know after tony and a couple other guys obviously barboza was never the same but when he when when tony did that to barboza shit dude that was very very special and so um everything kind of came apart obviously at the gaichi fight he's not been the same since there were other issues that I think, you know, tripping on the cord and and losing the fight and you know having to get surgery and time off and everything else like that, although coming back from that the way that he did. But ultimately, I think, you know, part of the reason why the fan base responded to him is because he was on an island and he was his own guy and he had affiliations and obviously and all that kind of stuff. But he was such a unique character. But it turns out maybe in the end, that also played a little bit of a role at the back end of his most recent chapter where having a more, and you can see him reaching out for teams now, but having a more, um, you know, having a less isolated MMA existence through team training probably would have been good. Probably would have been good. Uh, But the thing I take away from him is, again, there's a lot of unique characters. He's one of the most unique in fight style, in personality, in athletic profile, but it was a perfect, I mean, the fight game could not have been a better fit for him. And what he proved in that, run of undefeated fights is unimpeachable absolutely one of the best runs you'll ever see maybe not the best one i don't know if it's the very best one obviously what izzy has done at middleweight's pretty pretty remarkable and there's a lot of other ones as well but habib's you know undefeated run obviously but but that is an extremely respectable run fight metric told me once that it's like i forget what the stat is anymore but there was this was several years ago but there was a point in time where like many fighters maybe even most fighters didn't have a three fight like of the average ufc fighter does the average ufc fighter have a three fight winning streak at least as of a few years ago they didn't you know what was his like 13 or something whatever it was let me pull up tony ferguson's uh resume here let's see well there's gonna be other shit mixed in okay so from the Ultimate Fighter, he beats Justin Edwards on The Ultimate Fighter. Here, let's throw this up. He beats Justin Edwards on The Ultimate Fighter, Ryan McGillaray, Chuck O'Neill. Then he beats Ramsey Nijum in the finals. So then he beats Aaron Riley from the Washington, D.C. area, or Northern Virginia area. Then Eves Edwards. That was pretty impressive. So he loses to Michael Johnson, which was one-sided, but not like a terrible beating. And then that's when everything turned. He beat Mike Rio, which was in, a fellow alum off the same season, the Ultimate Fighter. You guys may not remember this name, but he was a karateka, Katsunori Kakuno, Danny Castillo, which was a split decision because he got taken down repeatedly. Uh, April Trujillo, Gleason Tebow, Josh Thompson. That's when shit really started to turn. Edson Barboza, right? Lando Venata, that one was crazy as shit. Rafael Dos Anjos, Kevin Lee, Anthony Pettis, and then Don Cerrone. Dude, I mean, that run, that run from Rio to Cerrone... It's just one of the best runs in MMA you'll ever see, you know. But but that end there against Gaethje, it just drives me nuts how on fight night when you know there's people being like this probably could be stopped already. Everyone's like, don't take it away from him, don't take it away from him. It's like, man, I got to tell you, someone's gonna take it from him no matter what. Either this is gonna go the distance and he's gonna get irreparable damage, or you're gonna stop it here. Um, and. that's not quite right. Let me think that through for just a second. If you let it go on fight night, the bill is going to come due later and it's going to come quicker than it ordinarily would. So you can let him go in this fight. You're going to pay for it later. Right? The idea that there's like, oh, we're just going to let him go today because it's the most important fight and blah, blah, blah. It's like, dude, he will, you will have a life when this is over. Like you will say goodbye to all of this and you will live a life you have to ask yourself what kind of quality of life you would like to have would you like to be ambulatory would you like to remember where your car keys are right i mean i'm not saying if tony's necessarily in this place uh, by himself but these are relevant questions to ask given what we know about like that kind of you know um, physical trauma and um and the traumatic brain injuries that happen accumulatively and in you know acute situations like that so you know you're going to pay for it Uh, one way or the other, you're going to pay for it. Uh, The question is, what's the better way to do it? Um, And, you know, these are very difficult questions to answer, but I would humbly submit that the way that 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 was done um, probably was wrong. Probably was wrong. That probably should have been stopped a lot sooner on that night. It was one-sided. Tony did drop him early, but after that it was one, and it was somewhat, not accidental, but um, it wasn't something he could replicate very quickly. And then after that, it was basically just one-sided. All right. Let's go back. All right, let's do this one because everyone is all bitter. Look, how do you not see it to be, uh, how do you not, excuse me, do you not see how it could be viewed as hypocritical to, on the one hand, you guys are pronouncing Norwich wrong. Also, I don't care, but correct BC at every turn for the mispronunciation of a fighter or location, specifically fighters of Latin or Hispanic, or places of Latin American descent. Same with repeatedly saying Macy Chat. I keep saying it wrong because I cannot fucking remember how to say it. Incorrectly, even with BC correcting you. I think you wouldn't get flack from viewers as much if you weren't going out of your way to say uh, Adesanya, Adesanya, right, while we'll also continue to say Rousey. I can never remember. Dude, here's the problem with these ones, like especially with Rousey. I can never remember what the fucking right one is. So is the right one with where you pronounce her S like a Z, Rousey? I believe that's the right one. But also with Macy's, I swear to God, I'm not doing a bit. For some reason, I, I, maybe you guys are like this too, maybe you're not. There are some names that I repeatedly, even after multiple instructions on how to say them correctly... For, it's not like I'm doing a bit like, oh, I'm not going to say it right for sport. I, I I routinely forget how to say her fight. I believe it's Chasson. I, I, I'm probably fucking that up. This one I, I need to do better about it. Yes, of course, it's utterly hypocritical. Yes, partly it's just me trolling because we don't say Norwich that way. So if it's a function of accent, it, it, it's a little bit of wiggle room. But if you're talking about the place as it's described by the locals, then you probably should say it how the locals say it. So yes, it's obviously hypocritical. Of course it is. Um, but in in general, not that this is much of a defense, but the names that I get wrong continuously after re uh, after BC or whoever multiple times correcting me, uh, it's just it's uh, it's just hard. To, it, it has been hard to rewire something once the bad habit has been set in for me. Unfortunately, so yes, utterly hypocritical, zero defense in that regard. But it's not intentional. For, her, for the fighters. I don't mean to do that on purpose. I, I'm trolling definitely other audiences, but I'm not trying to fuck with, with the fighters' names on purpose. I can assure you that. Um, Someone's asking, do you believe Hamza wanted to win against Kevin Holland without really physically hurting him? I think he wanted to get him out of there as quickly as possible and probably saw that sequence to his setups with the, with the Darce Choke. Um, as his best bet rather than trying to pound that guy out. But who's to say? Uh, Let's see. Let's get one with a few of these likes on it. Good question. I like this one. All right. One more time. What do you think about the fact that Tony tapped Diaz, however, just fucking refused to tap against Charles's armbar? Is this a sign of Tony aging, Diaz having that black belt squeeze, or maybe both? Probably both. Um, You know, could be also that he thought better of what happened against Oliveira, where, like, there could be lasting damage from that that we are not fully aware of, or there could be some mobility issues, or it doesn't, it doesn't move the same or you know there could be any kind of lingering health effect that he thought better of it afterwards obviously this was a choke and not a limb manipulation so um but listen i mean it's hard to explain like you know some of you have probably trained many of you have not it's okay but there are times when you get that squeeze put on you where you just know you're checkmated. you just that's it like there are, it could be a particular kind of choke a, a choke setup the, again to me it wasn't a big deal that he tapped in that way diaz must have especially because his limbs are thin He's got the ability to really snake them around and hit all the right angles, and that guy is—you know—he's going to know exactly how to squeeze. I said this on on Fight Night. The thing that got me about that fight was that when Diaz initially sat for it, he kind of missed and had to sit up again, and then put the arm over it a lot of times. When that happened, if you lose the initial clamp. It's very, very difficult to get the second clamp. And then for the second clamp, sometimes you can get it, but you can only get it to transition to something else like a sweep or you know, it's not really good enough to put them away. To get the clamp on the second one and for that to be almost immediately good enough to put them away, that's very difficult to do. Very difficult to do. That was the part that surprised me. I thought if you give Tony, like, that was the part that really got me. Five years ago, four years ago, whatever you want to say, if someone had i think even if diaz had tried that on tony i just feel like tony's resiliency through effort and scrambling would have been a little bit more pronounced um hard to say cuz i didn't feel that squeeze and i'm get you got to be very clear dude diaz's squeeze it's not even going to be like super hard it's just going to be absolutely thoroughly constricting and there's a difference like sometimes guys will lean back with guillotines and what you find when you lean back with the guillotine is you actually can pop their head out because you're you're actually trying to crunch especially if it's arm in you want to crunch in a little bit not you know not pull back and so there's just all kinds of ways where you can tell someone can be pulling really hard but it's not exactly on um but there's other times where you can tell where like is it the tightest choke i ever felt well i'm not like physically but if it's perfectly on you, you just know either way you're not getting out of it. Like you're just not going to get out of it. And so there just becomes a point where you're like, well, fuck it. Um, the question is, like, when you're answering that question, I know I'm not gonna get out of it. How true is that when you're when you're when you're when you're actually I should say it in that question, but when you're making that statement to yourself, how true is it? Like if you're if you're ready, if you're the kind of person that's ready to quit, you're gonna say that a lot quicker. Right. So the question is, how how tight was Diaz's choke? I'm sure very good. I am Please make no mistake about it. Diaz knows exactly what he's doing in that in that specific circumstance. But the fact that he had to readjust to get it on there and it still worked tells me that like eh, that lack of a second effort there to strip the grip or interfere with it or otherwise neutralize it. That was surprising to me. That was the surprising part to me. Not that once it would not. Yeah, I guess I'll put it that way. Not I'm not really surprised that once it was on, it was enough. I'm surprised that after the second attempt, it still worked. That's the part. That's the part that I'm I'm a little bit like eh, bad sign. Uh Let's see. Okay, people are bitter about this one. Let's go. Uh, Look, recently MMA fighting has done global rankings, both divisional and pound for pound. Their latest articles headline read, quote, Chemaev smashes his way to the top 20 pound for pound. They had him ranked 20th. What was insane about this list is that they had Leon Edwards ranked fourth beside his name noted that in their previous top 20, he was unranked. Am I crazy? Or does having Edwards over guys like Nganu and Aljo seem utterly insane? Well, he did beat. The pound for pound number one guy in the world via head kick KO. That'll that'll do something for your rankings. Uh, this is the guy who has how many finishes over top ten or fifteen opponents since weight class? Yes, I understand. But because he got a finish in a fight, he was very much losing. He's now the fourth. Okay, he didn't get a finish in a fight. He was very much losing. He got a finish over the number one pound for pound fighter in the sport. Big difference. I see a lot of people overcorrecting for how they previously viewed Leon. Your thoughts? Yeah, I do see a lot of overcorrection. Yes. I would agree with that. Hang on. Your boy is trying not to have his nostrils shut on him with these allergies. Here's their list, by the way. Volk, Izzy, Charles, Edwards, Francis, Usman. Let's pull this up a little bit. Here we go. Usman, Aljo, Holloway, Miocic, Whitaker, uh, Frede, or however the hell you say that. Uh, Let's see. We got Yuri in there. DJ. Could they have put him lower? Laurier, Figgy, Moreno, to Anderson, Chimaev. I don't know if Chimaev really belongs on the list, not because I don't think he's very good, but because the question of like who he has beaten, that's enough. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, these lists are very difficult to do. I don't like doing them for that reason because they often end up trying to navigate contradictory, um, in terms of what the values are they represent, contradictory criteria. Or I should say, competing criteria. So, I understand that you know, if you beat the number one pound for pound guy in the sport and you do it via head kick KO, that's that's a monumental achievement. I mean, you know, that doesn't happen very often, right? In fact, it has literally never happened to except to this point. So that's gonna that's gonna bump you very high on the list. But I get what you're saying that the overall body of work does not necessarily support that. Like that win stands that win would stand in contrast to any resume given the significance of it right there could be nothing else on the resume that would ever touch that because it, it, it couldn't so the number one pound for pound fighter in the sport it was a championship fight there was nothing else that could come close to that um but could he have had a body of work that uh had other fights on it that could speak to that domination in in a better way yes the fact that he had so many decisions for example doesn't speak to that although he has a lot of great wins so can't be too hard on him Someone's asking, will Laura Sanko make the UFC Hall of Fame? I say yes on the Pioneer wing. Uh, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Like No one is a bigger fan of Laura than I am. Uh, I certainly think the world of her. And I'm glad to see her get all of these uh, commentary opportunities because I think she's as good as their A-team, if not better. Let's, let's wait and see how things go. Here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. If she ends up getting... Onto regular pay per view as a regular commentator. Now she's up against just the whim of the producers who run those shows. And, you know, I think that they, the fact that Laura Senko was initially cast as like a sideline person, I've said this a million times, there's absolutely zero wrong with that job. In fact, that's a very difficult job and it's a very good job. But I don't think that that's how Laura Senko is best suited. I think she is best. She can do that job. She can do that job quite well, as a matter of fact. But I think she is best suited using her brain. And uh, she's got a great one. She has a great one. So giving analysis, working at a desk, um, interviewing fighters to an extent, actually, and then doing commentary. I think that these are the roles in which she is best suited. If she she can find a way, and, and again, in terms of skills, she's quite ready. But if she can find a way to convince the higher ups to put her on those kinds of places where she becomes the first woman on these like broadcasts in a a sort of a continuous way, our own version of Doris Burke or something, then, yeah, you might want to have a conversation about it. But, um, you know, let's she's very young still. Let's see how this goes. Let's see. Here's an interesting one. Can you picture Canelo Triple G3 looking like Volk Holloway 3 with Canelo putting on a flawless performance? Yeah. Yeah, I could. I could. First one, I thought uh, Golovkin won. I had long debates with King Mo about it. I thought Golovkin won. Uh, the 118-110 CJ Ross scorecard is about as insane as you might imagine. Or was it CJ Ross? Or um, Sorry, I could be getting that wrong. I think that was uh, Adelaide Bird. Was, uh, you know, impossible to explain. Absolutely impossible to explain. And then I thought Canelo won the second one. And since then, it's been, what, four or five years Canelo is in his prime. And Murata gave Triple G several tough rounds, but then Triple G overcame it. I'd be a little surprised if he beat him. Like, dude, Volkanovsky blinked Holloway. He blanked him. And I take zero pleasure in saying that Max has been a guy who taught me a lot about the fight game, who has been gracious with his time with me, who is an ambassador for Hawaii, who is just as great a person as we all know and understand him to be. Um, He got blanked. He didn't win a round. I'm not sure he won a minute of that fight. Do I see something like that with Canelo? I'd be surprised if we saw that. Boxing rarely lends itself to something like that. But do I see Canelo uh, beating him? Yes. Do I see Canelo potentially beating him up? Yes. Stopping him is the part where I'm like, that seems a little hard. I think Triple G is definitely not what he once was. But I think, I'll say this, if Canelo stops Triple G, the first person, no one's even knocked Triple G down. Right, understand that we're talking about a guy who's never even been knocked. Now, Max had never been knocked down either. And even in that fight, he wasn't. But you know, either either knocking out triple G or winning every round, that seems very difficult to do for Canelo. But you know, winning eight of eight of twelve, I think that's that's pretty doable and in fact likely. I think that's pretty likely. Um, let's see uh usada's not testing conor mcgregor bloody elbow wrote an article yesterday about how mcgregor had not been tested at all in 2022 and basically since his last fight have you read this and what are your thoughts could be any number of reasons including whatever medication he's taking pain pills or otherwise for his recovery but uh you guys know i don't really give a shit about anti-doping i think the entire conversation around performance enhancing drugs in sport is fraudulent i think we have a fraudulent conversation about it I think we have a completely fraudulent understanding of how pervasive the problem is. I think we have a fraudulent understanding of what role drugs play in sports generally. And I think we have fraudulent ideas about what to do about it. So, yeah, I don't give a shit. Let's see. Let's see. Someone's asking me if I believe in conspiracy theories. No, the fuck I don't. All right. Let's go back to this. Um, that's an interesting one. I'm not sure what you're asking here. Let's take a look. Why, in this case, the leech, do catch weight bouts affect the rankings of either fighter involved? Because it's a catchweight bout that's if. I mean, if they had fought above 185, they would have just called it a middleweight bout. The problem is, if you're in that in between space, it sort of has this revolving factor defaulting back to what you're both, if both of you have a natural weight class in that space, which, you know, 170 was the natural space there, at least the intended natural space. Um, so that's why. The question is, like, should they, if they're that far apart? It's the same with Aldana. And again, I'm going to fuck up the name. I cannot ever seem to get it right. Chassen, um, with Macy. Remember, that was 140. It just, there's this natural sort of way of doing it where, as long, whatever weight class the weight doesn't go over, that's the one you revert back to. So they went to 180. They never went up to one, you know, they didn't go into the, I guess they could have, I mean, they really could have called it a middleweight fight, in which case that was hard to know what that would have done. But the long story short is that you, the view, I think, from the rankings panelists is that you basically had two welter weights. So certainly you had one welterweight weight in this case. And then he was competing a few pounds up as well. How they see it, it still counts. Um, yeah. If you don't want it to count, you have to either do it another weight class. And even then it still might carry ramifications. Do you find it crazy that Whitaker isn't even ranked top 15 pound for pound? Given some of the names on the list, he seems like he certainly should be. Let's look at those rankings pound for pound. So you got Stipe, Brandon, Jan, Holloway, Jones, Old Uri there. Uh, Davison, Dustin. Yeah, he should be on the list. Yes. There's some names I'd shuffle here to put him on for sure. Yeah. Yeah, don't really agree with that. Mm -hmm. It's a fair point. All right. Let's see. Okay, let's get to this one. I don't think Hamzat should or would be favored against the current number one contenders at welterweight or middleweight, Whitaker or Usman. And I also believe Colby and Costa would provide litmus tests for him. Okay. Do you not think he is a bit overhyped? No, I don't. Well, I think he used to be. His best wins to date are Gilbert Burns, a former lightweight, and some people think he lost that fight, and Kevin Hollins, favorable style. I am so surprised by some of the reaction from him from some of the, the fan bases around the Shamaya win. Dude, if you don't think what Shamaya did to Holland is impressive, I don't think you really have a clear understanding of what's happening here. I am not telling you that that Kevin Holland has you know amazing takedown defense, amazing clinch breaking. He's the best scrambler at Welterweight. He's got lights out submission defense or submission attacks. That's not the value of the win. The value of the win is he has a black belt jiu Jitsu he's an accomplished fighter he's an experienced fighter for the most part and he's actually well suited for this weight class. beating him doesn't mean you're a world beater right beating him the way that Chemayev did can only happen like that kind of domination over someone who's got that kind of level of skill which is a very commendable not like the you know not the very best on division but a very commendable level of skill to co- to completely run him over, Is extremely difficult to do, especially without committing further error, without securing the finish. I mean, there's lots of ways that could go wrong. That is very impressive what he did. Very impressive. You could take someone, like, you could tell Colby, finish this guy off in 2 minutes and 13 seconds, and you can't really use your striking. Go do it. Could he do that? I don't think he could do that. Could Kamaru do that? Right? And you can't use your striking. I don't think he could do that. I, I, I don't know how many. I mean, again, there's some striking involved, obviously, but not much. Could he do that? Probably not. There's not maybe maybe Gilbert could do it if he came out there and just went like a bat out of hell. Maybe he could do it. The, that, the, the ability to melt people's physical resistance to grappling contact and or scrambles that way to completely run through it is is shocking. It's shocking. The overwhelming majority of fighters you will ever see can't do that. Um, and by the way, he got two or three takedowns on Gilbert. Just to be clear, now Gilbert was able to minimize a lot of the damage from them. But the idea that like Gilbert, you know, completely blanked him is, I think, somewhat overstated. And again, I, I think he fought Gilbert somewhat undisciplinedly. That's a word, which it's not. And he did it. Uh, what was his fifth or sixth UFC fight? You know, very re- relatively early into it. Plus, he's had what now five. UFC fights where he's absorbed one significant strike? I mean, come on, folks. You know, yeah, like, is he beating inferior opposition? O- okay, sure. But you can't do that to inferior opposition unless you're insanely good. Now, this is why I agree. Like, I'm not even worried about the Usman fight right now or Leon whoever ends up winning the trilogy. I do think Colby's the next one because I would like to see him tested by somebody who's in between that space. Colby's the only one. Colby's the only one because I think that Colby would lose early rounds. I think he would get not fully overwhelmed, but, you know, unable to get his offense going. That's not to me the the, the real question. The real question to me is what happens in rounds, the half back half of round three, round four and round five. Where we know Colby has very good cardio. He's got veteran experience. He's been to those places before in championship fights. What does it look like then? And we don't know. We don't have the answer to that. You can make a guess. I can make a guess. We can all make a guess. But nobody really knows. So, do I think he's overhyped? I don't know how you're hyping him. But to me, when I watch a guy completely manhandle people of the level of Kevin Holland, which I would consider a top 25 probably in the world, and just utterly throw him around like he's nothing, and the only reason that fight went as long as it did is because he had to readjust his fight ending choke a few times, I think a couple of times. And that's it. Completely manipulated his weight, put him on the ground, put him in submission trouble, rearranged it a few times through through motion, and then initially and then finished him off there like it was nothing. Dude, that is hard to do. Very hard to do. I think people people are looking at it like, oh, he beat a guy who's not a grappler first. That is the fucking wrong way to look at this super wrong way to look at this how many people could do that to kevin holland in the amount of time that that hamza did it with the exact same level of intensity without executing excuse me executing the mission without really walking into problems i'm going to bet almost no one and and all of ufc could do something like that with that amount of physical intensity he can bring, where he can force you to your hands, he can force you to your back, he can manipulate your weight, he can capture your wrist, he can break you down to uncomfortable positions, he can take command through back, through mount, through kind of leg rides, whatever he wants to do. He can he can open you up with strikes, he can lock on the choke. It is all happening very, very quickly. Where the amount of resistance that anyone can mount goes away so quickly. Dude, that is, that is a very impressive. It's not the same thing as beating Colby. No. That's why the Colby fight to me is critical. But I, I, I saw people being like, oh, he just beat a guy who's not a grappler first. Buckos, that is super the wrong way to assess this. You can't, you, it You is not possible to do what Shemayev did to Holland unless there is a massive gap between them. So we're trying to figure out exactly where that goes. Rest assured, it's at the high end. Rest assured. <laughs> like... His scramble ability as he was grand grand being to to windmill feet first back on top is, I mean, and then to find takedowns, he knows exactly when to capture. He knows exactly when to grip. He knows how to do it, when to turn. I mean, every detail of that, he's got down to muscle memory, and he does it with outrageous physical intensity matched now with submission prowess. I I would very much caution people against being like, oh, he beat Kevin Holland. Like, you know, Kevin Holland's not really a grappler. (laughs) <laughs> dude you can't do that to people very easily N- I'm sorry uh-uh so I was asking if I read Thomas Sowell regrettably regrettably a lot of questions about Hamzat's size okay here's a cool, good I like this question here we go oops Let's go back real quick. I lost my spot. Hang on. Here we go. Okay. How about this one? How far can a fully developed Kevin Holland go in today's welterweight division? He's obviously a very talented striker, but is it too late in his career for his ground game to develop to a point where he can hang with the likes of Bilal, Brady, Colby, etc.? I don't think so. Um, where, let's see, let me see something here. So let's check out Kevin Holland for just a second here. Old Kevin. Let me look at his. Okay. Evan Holland is 29 years old. No, it's not too late. It's not too late. He's got some time left in him. Whether he will do it, I do not know, but he is 28 years old. We shall see. We shall see. I think is the best answer there, um, but it's definitely not too late. I think with at that age, he is still capable of significant skill development. Um, whether whether he no whether he will actually be able to do it, another matter. But do I think it's too late? No, I don't think it's too late. If you could, how would you advise Nate on his next move? I think you got to go box, make all the money you can there. That's the move uh look i was surprised to hear your thoughts on tony after the weekend i'm usually not one to panic and tell fighters when to retire but i've been concerned about tony for a long time um yeah again i think i've i've changed and i've edited my views a little bit to be more in line with i think what was a correct criticism of mine yeah people talk i'm not going to sit here and fat shame jake collier it's just not what i'm going to do Um, same kind of question. Is there an uncertainty in Chemayev's gas tank, especially after that Burns fight? Yes. I think there's a question there. I, I'm going to keep saying it. The question to me, the two biggest ones are, one, can he make 170? That's the most important one. Is can he make 170 reliably and consistently? And then, you know, without too much of a negative ef- effect on his game. But two, does he have that first-round intensity because he doesn't have it in the fifth? Does he have that first-round intensity because it's not really there in the fourth? If that's the case, versus, again, once I mentioned Habib, which was not the same level of intensity, but that level he could exact over the course of the entire duration of the bout, that's a smarter way to fight. If Now, if, if Chemayev is the same in the first as he is in the fifth, God help everybody. God help everybody. So here's an interesting question, because people keep asking this about Izzy all the time. Look, assuming Hamzat can make 1-7, do you see him the favorite against Leon? I would pick Hamzat over Leon, yes. Yes, I would. Um, and Izzy. Here's the part about Izzy. It's like, also, do you see him a legit future three-way world champion? No. The most I've seen, we've seen a couple of his 185 fights or the one he had in the UFC, and then there's that match, the wrestling match that he had with Jack Hermanson where he was able to move Jack Hermanson around. He was clearly like... Um, Probably the better wrestler of the two, a little bit stronger, even if he was a little bit smaller. But Hermanson had some moments in that wrestling match as well. But obviously, you know, um, Shamaev was, you know, certainly on par, if not a little bit better than him. But that's just pure wrestling and or grappling. That's not really, it's not really MMA. It doesn't tell us a whole lot necessarily about how that would go. So again, like, you want to talk about how he would do against 170, or we can have that conversation. People talk about how he's going to beat the existing weight class champion, dude. He has to get through Whitaker first. And before that, he's got to get through Cannoneer. And then before that, he's got to get through, you know, Till or whoever. And you might say he can get, I realize he and Till are boys, but you know, that level of guy, Hermanson in MMA. He's got a lot of work to do before we get up there. I'm really not in any way concerned about how he'd match up with Izzy until we see how he matches up with a host of other fighters that we haven't even named yet. Okay, what the fuck is this? Look, one of my training partners likes to claim he will never be submitted in jiu-jitsu via guillotine by someone on their back as the Von Flu OSP choke is always available. It's not always available. Um, Before they finish him. Clearly Ferguson didn't think this was available, which makes me wonder, is my friend a little overconfident in his guillotine defense? Yeah, it's not always available. Um. What if you have the guillotine with the arm here? Hold on. Let me go back. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why that's not really true, but here's one. What if you had like, okay, so what's one thing that uh, Pedro Munoz and Jack Hermanson like to do? They like to fake like they're putting a hook in and taking the back. But what they're really do is lining up the arm and guillotine on this side. And when I say arm in, I don't mean head here and arm here. I mean, arm here and head here on the same side. Yeah, work, work your... If this arm is covered, how can you do the choke? Now, I guess if you're talking about a regular one, there is a possibility, but a couple of things. Let me think that through. So, could you do it? Uh, well, you could do it with high elbow and you could block potentially any ability to sort of wrap, which is what's required for the Von Flu. Um, if they're reaching up for it, you could let go and frame, right? So, like, I mean, there are a lot of ways. Here's what you're, he's pointing out Are there a lot of scenarios? Or someone could sit for a guillotine, um, especially from like it may even half guard situations where if they don't necessarily have it, I could reach up and then trap their arms with my Von Flu counter and get them. Yes, there are a few. There's a lot where that won't work at all. If that was just the obvious counter, it would work way more often than it does. It works on people who don't let go of chokes before they're supposed to or who don't have a savvy understanding at a higher level of guillotine chokes. But also you could do a lot of different arm in chokes from a variety of different setups where that would not be the case also like it that only works if the guillotine choke itself is not actually working if that motherfucker is on you're going to go to sleep right so he's talking about a scenario of people from either guard more likely half guard who have weak guillotines that aren't very good that he can counter yes that part you can do buddy try that Try go 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 i mean this is a very simple answer to this have him go do this on all the brown and black belts in class do do drills. See if he can get out. You will find that he is very wrong. He is very wrong. Let's see. Uh, here's a good question. Luke, is Hamzat the most impressive prospect we have seen in the UFC to date? He appears to have come from relative obscurity to absolutely dominate. Uh, the majority of his division weight miss aside. Is this the best come up we have seen in the organization's history? He's up there. He's up there. He's easily the top five, most dynamic prospects I've ever seen easily, 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 maybe top three. Brock was interesting. Cause Brock was, it was a, a different, um, era and a very different division, but you know, two, two fights in, he was fucking people up. Or after two, or I should say three fights in, he was fucking people up, you know? Um, that's different, but also like pretty goddamn commendable. Habib took his time, but was pretty commendable. There's been a lot. There's been a lot. All right, with that in mind, let's take some of your paid questions. Again, you can leave a donation if you'd like. If not, you're certainly under no obligation. We can get to those now. Let's see what we got here. So first, uh, hey, Luke, was curious if you guys got anything from Amoeba. Oh, Amoeba Records. What sections did you spend most of your time in? I walked it like I was uh, probably um, you know, high as balls. I walked it. Just like I was walking through a museum. I didn't, wasn't, I don't, I wasn't buying records and I'm not interested in that. I stream everything. But Amoeba Records, which is on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, is one of the most impressive record stores I've ever seen. Both curated and comprehensive at the same time, which is a hard thing to be. Um, open late hours, amazing. Like a it's a it's a cathedral to to people who are into that kind of thing. Uh, from Cooper, how has cannabis benefited your day-to-day? Well, um, any number of ways recovery, sometimes sleep, enjoyment. I mean, how do drugs benefit us more generally? Makes art better. It makes laughter more readily available. It makes music sound better. It makes sleep better. It makes recovery better. It makes creativity better. And not everybody, not all the time, but in general, yeah, I would say cannabis did that. In general. How do you predict a Hamzat versus Shavkat fight? See, this is the interesting one from Steely A, steely whatever. Shavkat would get... Uh, if Hamzat didn't run into some kind of choke early, Hamzat would... Shavkat would have to survive a little while. But the, Shavkat is so crafty that I wonder how he would do later. Like, this is what I mean about later in fights, like... They can't fight in a three round fight. They can't. They can't. It would be crime for them to fight in a three round fight. They got to fight in a five rounder, and then I want to see what happens. That's the one where I'm like, I think that'd be fun. From the big chase, Hamzat's team saying next fight will be at middleweight. Do you think Paulo Costa is the matchup? Costa seems to want it. I think that's way too advanced, personally. I, they might end up doing it. Maybe he's ready. I would. I would very much not do that. I mentioned those names earlier. I would go through that. I'm going to show you one more time. Let's put this back. Thank you, Big Chase. One more time here. I'm going to go to this one. I think uh, here. Gastelum, Imov, Duplicy, Tavares, and Curtis. I think that's far more justifiable than Paul, Paul Costa. They still might do it, but I don't really agree. Uh, someone asks... Why does Chael always toe Dana's line? At this point, I know which point of view he will take before listening to his video. When it's the company line X, Y, or Z, because the company line really worked for him in general. Like the problem with Chael's view is not that it didn't work for him; it's that it's just not a thing that a lot of people can do. Sometimes you can get a fighter, an independent contractor, who can get a really good relationship with the UFC, the promoter, and they can he, they can do favors for the UFC, and the UFC really will scratch their back. Like supporting their causes gets them rewarded on the other end the problem is that's very few people that can do that but i think he believes that that stuff works because it's worked for him um you know i just think that if we're if you're thinking about the broader interests of the fighter group the fighter classification the independent contractors what would benefit the, the majority of them what kind of changes would benefit the majority of them trying to suck up to the company is just not at the top of that list. That just does not seem like something that could, broadly speaking, materially improve the lives of fighters. Othman left one. Thanks, Othello, my own producer doing that. That's weird. Thanks, idiot. <laughs> uh, let's see. From Mockery. From mocracy, Excuse me. Did you watch Bigfoot Silva's kickboxing fight this past weekend with the KO loss as the CTE-induced depression in play? Dude, that, his story, I don't know how it's going to go. It's going to go real bad, I'm afraid to say. It's going to go real bad. Um, I don't take even the least bit of pleasure. I don't see how you can do what he's doing, which is basically slowly killing himself and destroying his brain, truly just destroying it. I mean, utterly inadvisable traumatic contact where his brain is already sensitive you know if you're in a car accident and you get a concussion your brain is sensitive for some time thereafter it's easy to get concussion if you you know were were to be in another car accident let's say a week later or something like that even if it wasn't nearly as devastating a wreck he's just doing that and among all the other damage he already had I mean we are talking about a dire situation if you ask me a dire situation and I know people who love him have tried to intervene it has not worked I don't really know why, but I I believe them. I'm sure that they have tried. I don't see any other way that his story ends in anything other than tragedy. What that means and what that looks like, I don't even want to contemplate, but I just, that one's going to go bad. It's going to go bad. Please no Baus. As much as I'm looking forward to it, I think we should give up on expecting Crawford versus Spence. I don't know, Mike Coppinger today reporting that um, the deal is not fully signed, but more or less the terms have been agreed to. Uh, and I said this on Twitter, and I mean it. I'm looking forward more to that fight than any fight on the combat sports calendar anywhere. Someone's about, someone even asked me, even more than Jones and Ganu, Significantly more. You're talking about two generational talents in the same weight class, roughly close to their primes, certainly in the case of Bud. Obviously, Spence is, I think, right in the thick of it. Um, fighting for we're talking about you're talking about a guy in Spence who is just the most unrelenting jackhammer, I think, in all of boxing. Brilliant technician, brilliant strategist, phenomenal athlete, just a crippling body puncher against Bud Crawford, who might be the smartest boxer that is out there today. One of the most just a genius. In the boxing world, an absolute genius with what he can do and how he can set up his shots and his timing is impeccable. He might be the best pure boxer I've ever seen, but I'm telling you, Errol Spence is a battering ram. I can't wait to see that fight. I cannot wait. Uh, Oh, there we go. I'll eat Crawford. Uh, I'll eat crow on Spence versus Crawford. Yeah, hell yeah. All right. Look, what do you see as Nathan's next move? Is it Jake Paul, BKFC, or jujitsu? Dude, why would BKFC or Jiu Jitsu tournaments ever be involved? <laughs> he's trying to make money. Now BKFC would probably throw a lot of money at him, but no, he's gonna do he's gonna fucking box. Like Floyd Mayweather is a maybe, you know. Um, but dude, like I remember someone asking me, is Nate Diaz gonna go to PFL? No, no, like why would he? Why would he go there and work for them? Well, he's gonna be—he's gonna have his own promotional company. I know he's got real, but I mean, like, you know, Jake Paul has MVP Most Valuable Promotions. There's gonna be like Diaz Promotions, so he's gonna get a promoter check and he's gonna get a fighter check, and uh, that's what he's gonna do—at least for the next one. I mean, I, I mean, you know, one never knows for sure, but I'd be shocked if he did anything else but that. Uh, let's see. Will Jake look for a technicality to get out of his contract with Silva like he did with Rockman Jr.? No. No. I think it, partly there's been so much teasing between opponents. He just needs to deliver at this point. The other one is I think he genuinely believes he can beat Anderson and he wants to make the money from fighting him. So no, I don't see that as all at all. Here's Othello being weird again. Uh, What's your beef with The Rock? I don't really have beef with The Rock. Like we're not boys enough or you know, I'm not on his radar enough to have beef with him. Uh, I just thought that, like, dude, I, I just can't stand it. I cannot stand it. When folks, companies, entities enter the combat sports space and they just lavish the fighters with praise, almost with this, you know, religious tones. You know, these they, they feel these strong emotions and this, Reverence for the fighters in these profound ways, but they're just words. And in fact, what you want, end up finding is that the greater that language, the f- more flowery and full of, um, you know, how highfalutin it is, and drenched in emotion, that that is positively correlated with the fact that they're going to fuck them over on the uh, other end of the deal. Anytime you see a company just shower fighters with praise, it almost certainly means they're not going to pay them very much. And I've seen this over and over and over and over and over and over again. And sure enough, The Rock comes out with a pair of shoes, and I know everyone's going to be like, oh, that's a deal between the UFC and Project Rock. Get the fuck out of here, dude. Please understand that, which is it? He's either incompetent or he's a bad person. You pick which one, or not bad person, but he made a, I don't know what kind of person he is, but he made a bad, he made a deal. Listen, here are your choices, yeah? One. His company didn't do any due diligence and had no idea that the fighters wouldn't get, you know, really any kind of fair compensation from this. And he's finding this all out now and is very surprised by the, by the by the result and by the the fact that it takes place. That's one interpretation. He's incompetent. The other one is, and much more likely, they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew that any kind of deal with the UFC was not going to have any kind of component that went to the fighters, and they went ahead and signed the deal anyway. And the easy thing for them to say is, well, that's the deal between UFC and independent contractors. Dude, you knew. You knew. You knew. A- any company worth a shit, by the way, Project Rock is backed by Under Armour, yeah? So, y- so which is it? They are incompetent or they just don't care? Because either way, you're that, the, the, it doesn't make him look good. He, he doesn't come out like this looking great. I mean, the guy's best friend that he constantly touts on social media is Jeff Bezos. You think he's looking out for like, People who don't make that much. I don't think that's where he's got his priorities set at all, quite frankly. Uh, So, you know, I just can't, in good conscience, like asking about Black Adam. It's probably a really pretty good, you know, superhero movie. I'm sure I'll see it at some point, but I'm not going to go out of my way to put money in that dude's pocket. Like, no chance. And I don't think he gets off the hook being like, well, the the UFC controls an independent contractor. If it really mattered to you, you would have signed a deal where there would have been some kind of provision to make sure that the fighters got a cut. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter. That's why this is such a great deal, right? Because you don't have to pay. I mean, imagine this. You have an apparel deal where you don't have to pay the people who are wearing the deal, who are wearing the merchandise, who are wearing the apparel. Like <laughs> it's fucking insane. You mean to tell me you signed that deal without really knowing this would happen? Right? Like, I geez, I had no idea this would happen. They knew. They knew they that company did do Do excuse me. That company, in my opinion, I'm certainly this is my belief. There's no way they didn't know that the athletes wouldn't get a cut and or that this wouldn't be a controversy. That they 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 knew from the Reebok deal that it would be. They just felt like probably navigating the space, they could thread that needle and get away with it. And he's probably right. They probably can thread the needle and get away with it. Nobody will really care. You know? He's probably right. But that doesn't mean I have to think that's great. And I don't think that's great. I think it's pretty fucking shitty to be honest with you. All right. Do you have a unique hatred for Gina Carano? I have pity for Gina Carano. Every time she gets mentioned on MK, you insult her intelligence. Well, it's fair game. You don't do the same with other fighters who have similar or more extreme views. Yeah, did they punt on a Star Wars career? I mean, we can all agree or disagree. Here is what she did in terms of political worldviews. Here is what she did. She punted on something that was as close to a goldmine in career uh, uh, acting as somebody for, who has no other ties to Hollywood could ever probably get. I mean, we're talking Star Wars, potentially getting her own series. I mean, could have set her up for life. And the response would be well, she had to hold true to her values. Well, what are her values exactly? Because it looks like to me what she would have rather have done. I mean, here's, here, here's the problem. The shit she posts on social media indicates she is what we would call a low information voter. Right, these are not like she's not synthesizing, to the best of my knowledge. Um, forget scholarly works, but even like reasonably informed worldview, um, worldviews put together by you know otherwise savvy or studied political uh, writers or, um, you know contemporary thinkers or you know who whoever you may may wish to ascribe like something between the middleman of the direct scholarly paper and then what gets sold commercially at bookstores that helps one to increase their base of knowledge. It's, 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 it's the lowest version of that. And so I'm supposed to like dignify this. She punted on a Star Wars career so she could post the things that a low information voter would really sort of identify and care about, like utterly trivial things or misunderstanding big picture issues or just having a general knowledge of the world that is extraordinarily lacking like you you punted on a worldview not so much for the views but for a version of the views that are the least studied and or respectable version of the actual views and that there was this intentional need to parade it as well it just seemed like an incredibly incredibly poor decision making i pity her more than anything else What do you think about Floyd Mayweather's next thing? I don't give a shit. Uh, Views on Wilder versus Hellenius. I heard Wilder on the Last Stand podcast today. I listened to it when I walked my dog. Um, He seems ready to go. He seems ready to go. I hope he wins only because I'd like to see him against Joshua, potentially Ruiz. Ruiz also with PBC, so that seems like it's a reasonable possibility. Um, I, I think Deontay is fun for the fight game. I like the fact that he's got nuclear power, even though he doesn't have a whole lot of other parts of the game, that it seems like really interesting to me. And um I'm glad he he is a he is a very interesting addition to the fight game, whether or not you think he's the best heavyweight. I think keeping him around is if we can keep him around, and he's still like, you know, putting out a good effort, uh is is good for boxing. Does Hamzat from SB, does Hamzat likely get permission from the Swedish government to meet with Kadyrov considering Kadirov has been banned from entering Europe since 2014? It's a great question. I don't know. And since no one who ever interviews him ever asks him, it's hard to know. Uh, hey, big fan from India. Were you born in India? Yes, I was. Have you been there recently? No. Why is UFC or Belter not trying to expand in India? UFC was for a time and then stopped. I don't know if it's because of the uh, average purchasing power of the consumer base there um because obviously that's a that's a market that is ripe for combat sports they love professional wrestling there they love regular wrestling there they have actually a very good wrestling in india it's obviously a huge in terms of the number of people a huge consumer population or uh yeah yeah, exactly that um but in terms of why there haven't been more like full-throated efforts to grow the game there i cannot say i my, my guess would simply be that i don't know how much money there is to be made in terms of um Someone would have to prime the pump to get that market going. And it seems like no one really wants to do that right now. This person writes DC Chael, and Bisping were disingenuous, hyping up Nate versus Hamza like they did. Nate had a chance, but the UFC arranged a massacre. These guys knew it and still wanted to sell us on Dana's narrative. I mean, um, I haven't I didn't see a whole lot of what they had to say. You know, obviously there's some pressures working with UFC um that potentially could come with that. I without seeing exactly what they said, it's hard for me to. To, to buy into it, but it's like... um, You should, if you believe that, again, without having seen what they said, if you believe that, you should take that into consideration about who you go to for subsequent coverage. But I can't personally weigh in on it because I have not seen it. What do you feel about, what do you like about I think you're talking about Hamzat. What do you like about his riding and his body lock? I'm a fan of his feet and how he always gets uh, around these guys. Uh his strength is extraordinary. His his ability to achieve quick position is uh amazing and his body lock is versatile. He can use it to um To mat return, he can use it to mat return a variety of different ways. He's got immediate attacks based off of the mat return. He's got trips in the mat return. He can lift and elevate, so he can drop and mat return a particular kind of way. I mean, there's just a lot. It's just versatile and and controlling, and he doesn't waste a lot of time with it. Like you might spend time in the body lock if you're resisting, but he's not a guy who grabs it and then holds it and doesn't do a lot with it, dude. Once he gets it, you're moving, you're moving. So. He's just very adept at using it and weaponizing it. All right, I really enjoyed the RSD with Chael. I remember y'all having a less than nice back and forth a couple of years ago. Who smoothed it over? I, uh, if you guys didn't hear, we talked about it on my radio show at the time. He later called me and we had a conversation about it. and We worked out our differences, so I had no issues. I haven't had issues with him for a long time. We we talked about um, you know everything, and uh, and that was that. So um to me there was no issue at all like i was fine uh and i think he was too he didn't seem to mind like i got I, for y'all who may have not heard because again with the problem with sirius xm when the way in which i was there was obviously it's behind a paywall so not everyone's going to hear every detail those listeners probably knew at the time and i don't know how much i ever publicized it but we definitely i definitely talked about it on that show we've been cool for a while we've been cool for a while so yeah that's not a that's not a present concern Okay, uh, I didn't appreciate your the condescending way you answered my question about Real Madrid and Franco. Yeah, because I've answered it a million times. Folks want to ask the question once a year, and then that person who sees it once a year, they might think it's the first time they've asked it. It's like the 50th time I've had to engage it. Like, how many times am I supposed to answer this? I understand you might be asking it in a way that is new to you, but I, at some point, I just get tired of it. Uh, even if you think it's a stupid question, I don't think it's a stupid question. I think it's an old question. We love you, Luke. Don't turn against your fans. Don't turn your fans against you, my man. Nor am I trying to. I appreciate your patronage. I appreciate your donation. I appreciate everything about this. But you got to understand um, the Franco question. I don't even know what to say about it anymore. Like, it's not the first time I've heard about it. It's not the 50th time I've heard about it. It's not even the hundredth time someone's brought it. It's not. A, it's not even the thousandth time that someone has brought it up to me. I don't see. For any number of reasons I've already articulated, I don't see it as a particularly compelling response. It doesn't have anything to do with my existing fandom. And I don't think I have to answer for it, nor do I intend to. So I understand that your reasoning for it might be, in your mind, utterly fair. I I respect that. But you got to put yourself in my shoes for a little bit. How many times am I supposed to answer the very same question over and over and over again? I think there's a limit to that. That's all. Uh, Holland's wrestling has improved, though. And yes, Gilbert got taken down. He got taken down once. Um Hamzat Chimaev didn't press because of the submission threat because Gilbert's BJJ is next level. True. All very true. Yes. And he adds with Hamzat is a smith and and a surgeon. Oh, like a like a blacksmith. Um, yeah, that's not a that's not a bad, that's not a bad way to think about it. That's it, that's that's more right than it's wrong. Yes. Shafkat takes his time, um, and it's a little more precise with it. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd largely agree with that as sort of a basic way of understanding it. Sure. Uh, All right. How do you see the Olivera versus Islam fight? I think a lot of people forget that Islam got his lights turned off. He's no Habib. People have asked me about this before. I promise you guys I'm going to do a breakdown. I'm going to do a breakdown for that one, Um, a pre-fight and obviously a post-fight, because that's so important. There's no way to get around that. And, like, what are some possible avenues of attack that he might pursue given the threat he's up against in either direction. Um, again, I tend to think that one is going to be one where is going to want to put a pace. I think Islam is going to want to slow it down. I think Islam's going to want to get to a body lock. He's going to want to get to wrestling positions from the back. I think he's also going to want to do damage on the feet and you know press into, um, not back up too much against, uh, against Oliveira. We shall see, though. But I will do a fuller, I will do a fuller breakdown on that for everyone. I think it's important and it's a fair question, but it's a it possible for me to give you a really great answer in this circumstance. All right, last but not least, Luke, what do you think Nick Diaz does next? Um, he will take another fight. I'm certain of. Oof. Yeah, I have my glasses on too tight. You see that? He will take another fight. I'm certain of it when and against who and in what weight class your guess is as good as mine remember it was supposed to be 170 they had to bump it to 185 like last minute some some crazy ass shit like that so uh i think he'll fight probably first quarter of next year and probably at 170 probably but that's hard to say i don't think he's got a whole lot of time left um candidly all right i mean they just won't stop texting me oh Two extra questions from last week. So, someone last week, there were two questions that folks had put in on, and I did not get to them. Uh, let me see if I can get to them now, and then we will close the show because I don't want to, I don't want to, not answer them. Let's see here. Let's see. Why don't the MK Studios have decent microphones? Your remote mics are infinitely better. It drives me insane. It's a problem that we've had for a while. Um, a lot of it is that the people who do the miking—it's an—it's—they're uh, independent contractors. are not like—it's not with Showtime, so it's with Malka Studios. Showtime uses Malka for that, and Malka, I think, in general, they, given all the properties that they have, they do a really great job. But with a lot of times, they're bringing in talent that they—they've never used before, and so that can come sometimes lead to problems. I think what we're going to do is we might just transition full time to full mics like this. I think we might be done with the lot of mics. We'll see, but that that, that seems to be the, the direction we're headed. And then let's see. Who are your favorite mid-card action fighters? Guys who competitively may not be the best serve by pushing into the upper ranks but produce incredible technique in action, win or lose, like a Cub Swanson. Kevin Holland's another one of those. You could put him on that level as well. I think Kevin Holland's sort of perfect for that in that particular role dude i mean look at the there's a million guys you could put on that list anybody who's not ranked who's up and coming um i don't have a ton of names for you off the top of my head but like for example let's look at the ufc fight night card coming up ufc vegas 60 all right so here hold on pull this up all right so if we look at this card, Sanhagen versus Song. So what, what are some ones we have? Damon Jackson versus Pat Sabatini. That's a great one. Andre Feely versus Bill Algia. We talked about that. Chidi Anjikawani versus Gregory Rodriguez. Let's jump to the next event. Dern versus Jan. Sadiq Youssef versus Don. Uh, I can't pronounce his last name. Shainas. Shainas. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. How about this one? Massa Randuba, Francisco Trinaldo taking on Randy Brown. Another perfect example. Let's jump to the next one. Grasso versus Arugiao. Circonal versus Minifield, I could sort of take or leave it. Cub Swanson versus Jonathan Martinez. Brandon Roival versus Askar Askarov. That's a great one. Um, let's go to the next one, UFC 280. We'll jump down further on the card. Let's see. Who do we have there that we could also go to? Uh, that one's too stacked for to say that. How about Fight Night? Let's see. Um... Dustin Jacoby versus Khalil Roundtree is a great one. Roman DeLidze versus Phil Hawes is another one. I mean, all these guys are talented enough where they're not ranked, but they're very very respectable. And so you want to honor that space in between all of those guys, I would say. Okay? All right. Thank you so much for watching. I appreciate it. Podcast goes up tonight before I go to bed, so you'll have it first thing in the morning when you get up. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you. Email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. What'd you think about some of the changes? Still, some more to make, what do you like? What do you not like? Tell me, and I'll try to do my best to incorporate all of it. Oh, there might be one. Oh, there's a couple more left. Hang on, hang on. How long do you think the celebrity boxing wave will last? I think it ends when Jake is KO'd. Probably, I don't know. It won't end when Jake is KO'd, but if Jake is KO'd, it does significant damage to it. There will be a little bit trickles of it. It won't like all of a sudden stop on a dime. But I think that will be that will massively imp, uh, impair it. Yes, I do believe that. However, it opened up MMA strikers to enter boxing. What about boxers fighting each other in MMA rules in UFC? Who the fuck would want to do that? And who's going to pay for that? But what I will say is guys getting ideas about fighting each other outside of the UFC, I think that you can't put that idea back in. The toothpaste can't go back in the tube on that one. So like Conor versus Nate 3, could it be a boxing match where they make all the money? Could be, could be, yes. That kind of thing could live on. Um, it would only work for a certain kind of fighter in a very unique circumstance, but it would be available under the right one. That's one to keep in mind as well. Uh, last but not least, how does Hamzat do versus Colby? I don't know or Usman. I think Usman probably wins, but I that one's a tough one. That's a, those. I think he's competitive with both of them. I really believe that. Um. But this is why we need to see the Colby test. The big questions about his game are still largely unanswered. Also, how do you feel about stance switching in MMA? What makes what Sandhagen does effective in Izzy? Or my new guy, Nathaniel Wood. So many people make it bad. I, I did. How about this? I did an interview with uh, Adrian Yanez about this, about stance switching and what makes it work. You should hear his answer. His answer involves... Everything about how you set it up, when you do it, through motion, through camouflage, through disguise, through timing, through angle. The guys who can do it under those considerations, and you should hear his answer for it. It's on the MK page, so you can go to youtube.com slash morning combat, and you can check out my interview with him. He talks about what he looks for in stance switching because he uses it and what matters to him and what doesn't. And guys who do it poorly, he says he likes to time them on the switch and then light them up on fire. I think the guys who do it very nakedly right in front of you, not the end of the world, but not my preferred method of doing it. And I think there's a lot of guys who do it just to do it without really having a weaponized capacity to do it. Um, so they're starting to use that tool before they can really leverage it and maximize it. The ability to fight in different stances is much harder than you imagine. And you don't need to be equal in both, but you need to have, be adept and how to switch between both so it's like I can fight in this stance and I can fight in this stance. And and I can transition between the two in a way that doesn't get me caught, that sets up extra weapons, that opens up unique vulnerabilities. Those are the things. So it's it's actual ability in both stances. It's the ability to achieve them without causing disruption, and it's the ability to flow between them. That allows you to, again, not be hurt, not be caught, not, get, not set up a problem while you're setting up a problem for somebody else. I'm going to step this way knowing he's going to move that way so that I can catch him on the exit, that kind of thing. Like what um, Anderson Silva did to Forrest Griffin. Watch the stance switch that he does at the end to catch Forrest moving into the punch. That is effective stance switching. Yeah? All right. Now we shall call it a day. Thank you for watching. Podcast goes up tonight. Love you all. I'll be back next week. Have some more content between now and then. And until next time, stay frosty.